Okay? Now, coming to today, we are in week three of a, of a series we call Questioning Christianity. Normally, we just go through books of the Bible here. In fact, right after Easter, we'll jump into the book of Titus, and then we're doing the book of Psalms, and then we're doing the Sermon on the Mount in the fall. Okay? But today, week three of Questioning Christianity, what we wanted to do is take a bunch of the questions that many of you have written in and emailed to myself and to Anthony and answer as many of them as we can, okay? Uh, I cannot guarantee we'll get to every question that was asked. We tried to uh, kind of put them in buckets to help kind of uh, cover big topics over questions uh, that were pretty similar, okay? So if we don't get to yours, come and talk to Anthony afterwards, and he'll answer that for you, okay? Uh, But we're going to cruise through these. Uh, bear with us, because here's the reality, and I'll say this on the front end. Um, man, we study a lot, and, uh, and we've put in the time, and we research, and this is kind of what we do, uh, but we are not biblical scholars in the sense of I'm not writing books, right? And I'm not uh, writing a book on doctrine or theology. I study the guys who write the books on doctrine and theology. Um, and so listen, there might be stuff in here where, hey, we don't have the full and complete answer, but we'd love to sit down and discuss what that looks like, right? So if you hear something like, well, that's not the complete picture, and I'd love to know more, let's sit down and have that conversation. This week, we'll also send out additional resources for you guys to follow up on a lot of the topics that we'll jump into. Okay, does that sound fair? And then next week, we'll wrap up this series and then move into Good Friday and Easter two weeks from now, and it'll be great, and we'll celebrate, and it'll be good. Okay, what I'd like today, knowing that we're answering all these questions, is I would love some audience participation, and we're going to do it in a couple different ways. One, we always love a good amen, right? So if you agree with something we say, toss out an amen. I always say this, but if you don't agree with what we say, just be quiet, okay? Um, The second thing, if we can put up the slide, just go ahead and put up the first question. Um, you'll notice, well, you can also text in a question. So we're going to plow through the ones we've gotten. And if you have a question, maybe about a question we've already answered or a new question that we haven't addressed, you can go and text that in, and then we will get it on this, this Apple computer, praise God for technology, and then I will, or Anthony will, do our best to answer that one on the fly. Okay, so that's the plan. If you have a question, feel free to text that, and you can do that as we're going through, and, uh, and we'll go. Sound good? Amen? Amen. Fantastic. Okay, so let's get started. We had a few questions that came in um, that we decided we weren't going to answer today. And that's because either A, we've already answered that in a previous sermon in a very significant way. Or B, we're going to be answering that either in a coming sermon, coming sermon or uh, in a class that we'll teach at our Redemption Fall or Spring class section session, which is in... Uh, April. Okay, so those questions were, uh, what does the Bible talk about gender roles, gender distinctions, gender equality? We're going to be teaching a class on that April 17 and 24. I will head up a discussion. Katie Duncan is going to be a big part of that as well. And, uh, and we're going to get together and teach and talk through that idea. So we did have questions coming on that. Again, we'll teach that in the class. Uh, this, another question was about L- the LGBTQ community and how do we as a church uh, engage and love that community well? How do we see them as Christ sees them? And how do we also maybe stop even using the language that causes an us and them reality as opposed to, man, God truly does love his entire creation and seeks the repentance and the forgiveness and the salvation 
of all. So that we spoke of in length back when we were in our Roman series, and we've taught two classes on it now. And so if you want to have that discussion, we'd love to sit down and talk to you about that, refer to you some of the resources, and then we can go from there. The other question that we are not going to answer today, because Anthony is going to preach on it next week, is essentially the existence of evil in a world after Christ, right? If Jesus came and forgave sin, why is there still, still evil in the world? Also answering questions like, hey, how, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen? to bad people on that entire nuanced question, Anthony will preach on next Sunday, and we'll get into that, okay? So the question that we'll answer first today, you have anything to add to any of that? I went quick. No, that's incredible. Thanks. Thank you. Anthony's actually disappeared to, to, to say amen a lot. Uh, no, so number four, this is the fourth question. Well, actually, we are going to get into this a little bit, I think, actually. So on number three, I think we, the A part, we're going to get into it. Yes, we are. Oh, we are. All right. So this, how could God allow and even sometimes arrange so much violence and death? So that's kind of, so next week I'm going to be answering the question, why does God allow evil, right? And so we're going to kind of get into that. And so about violence and and death and all that kind of stuff, that's a little bit more nuanced uh, of a question. And I'd have to say, what kind of specific violence are you talking about? Um, And we kind of talked about that a little bit like eight weeks or so ago, or maybe like about 10 weeks ago now, uh, with when we went through Joshua together. And so, um, so that's a little bit more nuanced of an answer. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that next week. And then what I specifically want to answer was kind of part A of this question is, my understanding as a Christian is that Jesus came to save the world and right all wrongs. So why do we still see and experience so much brokenness? I hear people say it's because we live in a fallen world, but do we? Um, so I would say, I'll say this, I'll kind of break it down, but yes, we still live in a fallen world. Okay. And so, and yes, Jesus did come to right all wrongs. And so Jesus, when he came, what he first did was defeat sin and death, right? He, he lived the perfect life for you and for me. And then he died on the cross, uh, in our place. And, uh, and then he raised from the dead, defeating death. And so sometimes we're kind of stuck in this, okay, if he's defeated it, why do we experience so much brokenness and sin? And it's because of this kind of term theologians use called the already but not yet. The already but not yet. And basically it means that Jesus has done everything you need for salvation. And he's even in a sense done everything that is, is necessary for the world to be made new one day. But... It has not yet happened yet uh, because I think God is being patient so that all might be saved. And, uh, and so a kind of uh, analogy people use, it, it, they uh, relate it to World War II. And they'll say, you know, the war, World War II was won on D-Day. And if you don't know a lot about World War II, uh, if you've seen Save it, Saving Private Ryan, D-Day was that, that uh, scene where they stormed the beach in the beginning. Uh, but not that I watch radar movies. But uh, it was the TV version. And, uh, and so that was D-Day, right? And then, but the war was, the, so the war was essentially won at that point. But V-Day wasn't for a few months later. And so that's kind of what has happened um, with Jesus and our broken world and salvation. And, the, and, and so the not yet is that Jesus has not come back to, to specifically judge everyone and to make the earth completely new and, and bring in the new Jerusalem. So I think that kind of answers it. Anything to add to that? No, I think it's really good. I think that analogy has been super helpful for me personally, just thinking through the reality of the brokenness that still exists in our world. And we all have it. We all have experienced it at various 
levels. And to know, I think, I just want to speak on the tail end just to, to point to the hope of Jesus Christ in the midst of it. That if you are in that season, right, or if you are in that stage experiencing that trial, that tribulation, that brokenness, um, like this too shall pass, right? So the Lord, whether it be in this lifetime or the next, right, he is writing all wrongs. He is going to completely deliver you um, in him uh, from this present darkness, okay? And so I just, I do want to point to that hope because I think we can easily look around our world, and we've talked about this a lot, I think, over the last few months. We can look around our world and I think just go to depression, right? Like it's just, it's a mess, right? There's brokenness, there's pain, there's sadness, there's hurt, there's destruction over and over and over, both I think personally in our own town, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. And and I think we can move towards depression, but Jesus is the king of the world. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and is ruling and judging the world. So we do sit underneath a good and perfect king. And so if you are in that season, I just want to express the hope that does exist in Jesus because of what he's accomplished for us, okay? Um, And so uh, the next question is, uh, number four here, how can the Bible be completely trusted and seen as God's word when it was written and compiled by man and people? And, and, and again, this was a question we received. I got a bunch of emails actually uh, in the last couple weeks kind of uh, saying more questions about the Bible. How can we trust the Bible is, is inerrant, is authoritative uh, when, you know, it was written by man, but also it's been changed so much over history. Do we still have what they originally wrote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, a few things. Okay, first, um, the problems uh, that, that's, an, that's addressed in this first question is, well, man wrote this, right? And so the Bible speaks to this in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, right? So the Bible, right, you can say the Bible attests for itself, which isn't always the number one evidence for anything, right? Like if I just tell you I'm a really good person, that doesn't mean a lot because I'm the one telling it to you, right? But if other people begin to attest, but that being said, scripture attests to itself. It calls itself scripture. When we look throughout the New Testament, various writers will refer to other writings by their fellow apostles as scripture, as from God. Now let me also set the context of this. I think we're trying to place a 21st century worldview on an understanding of the compilation and, and the, the giving of Scripture from God. So we're thinking we sit here today and God will come and speak to me right now and I will say, thus saith the Lord, and it is concrete, that's exactly what he said. Okay? That doesn't happen very often here, or do we express that very much? We'll be that confident this is clearly God. But we have to understand the context of who is writing these documents. These men and women are coming from a, a history and a tradition of God interacting and speaking with his people, both directly face-to-face as with Moses through his prophets who were known by the people of God to be communing and speaking with the Lord. And they wrote down the things that were part of uh, their life and the testimony and the law and all that stuff to man. And so this is the context we have for what's being written. So they had an understanding of what it meant to have scripture, to have holy words spoken from God, to have things given directly from him for the people of God, namely Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. So we have to understand that from that perspective, okay? We also have to understand the compilation of scripture, the way that they landed on what was going to be in the Bible. How could they determine what was scripture? There was four questions that they asked 
when they put this together and canonized what we have today as the Bible. The first question was this, was an author, was the author an apostle or have close connection with an apostle, right? The apostles, the 12 men that God appointed as his guys to go and bring the good news to the world. They either had to write it or someone who was directly related or closely related to the apostle. The second question was, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? And so across the landscape of the early church, was it already understood this is the word of God, okay? This is God's scripture to man. And if they said yes, then it meant that criteria as well. Again, to emphasize the context of a people who come out of a tradition of knowing and understanding that God speaks to his people, had given the Torah, had given the Old Testament prophets. The third question was, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching, right? So in other words, did the letter that was present, right, was it actually legit? Did it fit in with what Christ had said? Did it fit in with the rest of what was orthodox, which was good, faithful, and true teaching amongst the early church? And if it did not, then it was not scripture, okay? Number four, did the book bear, witness, uh, bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? And so this one, less on a uh, real cognitive standpoint, on a heartfelt moral level, did it fit in with the values of the church, the values of Christ that were so being propagated? Again, this was not just something they were coming up with. The church was living this, okay? The church was living all of this. And so they looked at these documents and said, okay, this, this seems to be from the Lord. One of the big things we have to, I think we have to land on as Christians is the sovereignty of God, okay? If we do not believe in the sovereignty of God, I can understand why you would question the canonization of the Bible. But if God is real, and if God desires to communicate his law and his message and his story to a people in order to redeem them back to himself, indeed all creation then surely he is part of this process. He is heavily involved in this process. The Holy Spirit was heavily, considerably, I would say completely involved in the process of giving the words to man for them to write that they would then be passed down tradition to tradition all the way to us today so we can read what they wrote. Okay. Now, um, without belaboring this too much longer, because it is a, a question that is worthy of an entire sermon series, um, I would say this, to address the issue of translation and is what we have now what they had then. And there's a couple different ways you can look at this. There's two different words that people all, all, often go to. One is radical skepticism, which is what most of your uh, New Testament professors at NAU or whatever school you were part of. I went to San Diego State. My professors would line up with radical skepticism, which says what we have now, there's no possible way we could know what the original New Testament authors met, meant when they wrote the New Testament. Okay? Then you have on the other end, which is absolute certainty, which means that every single word in the Bible that maybe you picked up when you came in, in the translation of the ESV, is the exact word for word, word from God to us, and that is also not true. Okay? So there is translation, and there are things that are different. Just for a prime example, maybe some of you use the NIV. And you used the NIV back from the 80s, and you went through it. If you now use the 2011 Today NIV, they have differences, right? So immediately in that, there's a contradiction. We cannot say that both of these are the exact word of God, word for word in their translation. So certainly there are changes. 
But I will say this. We can say, I would, I would say based on the evidence, without a shadow of a doubt, that what we read today in our Bible is almost as close as it gets to what was originally written by the authors in the first and second centuries of this world, okay? The reason why we know this is a host of different reasons. For one, we have a thing called the bibliographical test in which they take all of these different criteria, compare them to books of antiquity, and say, how likely is it what we have today is what they wrote then? Consistently and over and over and over in the world of scholarship, the book that they will herald as the number one litmus test for all books is Homer's The Iliad. Okay? And the questions that they go through is one, how many existing copies do we have of that manuscript? Okay? For the Iliad, there is 1,800. For the New Testament, there is 6,000. Okay? So there's over three times the amount of the Iliad do we have of the New Testament. Of the Old Testament, we have over 40,000 copies. Okay? And so when you take this first test, we blow away the Iliad at all types of of levels. When they looked at accuracy level based across the, the 1,800 copies of the Iliad versus the uh, 6,000 copies of the New Testament, they said, okay, based on this, how many discrepancies exist in the midst of all these copies? The consistency rating for the Iliad was somewhere around 70%, give or take, and it's changing as new copies are found. Of the scriptures that we have, of the 6,000, the discrepancy list keeps us at a 98% consistency rating across 6,000 copies of the New Testament, right? So what we can say is the more copies we found, in fact, the farther removed we get from first and second, the first and second centuries, actually the closer we get to the original intent because we find more and more and more copies and line them up with the rest and say, wow. They're all saying the same stuff. The 2% of discrepancies that we find across all of the 6,000 copies are even uh, when brought up by Bart Ehrman, who is one of the, the kind of the top uh, radical skeptics in our country, right? Has written books uh, like Misquoting Jesus, if you read that. Even he, in an appendix to his own book, when asked by the publisher, hey, these discrepancies, in what ways do they contradict the core doctrines of the Christian faith? And his response was, they don't. So nothing in the 2% goes against anything that is a core doctrine of the Christian faith we have today. In fact, most of the 2%, when you open up your Bible and you read through, you'll find the 2%, and it's located in the footnotes of your Bible where it says, some early translations say this. The other discrepancies are some scribes didn't know how to spell John right, so they spelled it with two N's instead of one N. And you had issues like this. You had an issue where one word was before the other word when it should have been switched around, and on and on and on. Again, I cannot emphasize enough over and over and over that what we have today is as close as we will probably ever get to the exact document written by the early authors and writers, inspired by God, given to man, that we would know the true story of the world, we would know about Christ, and we would give our lives to him where there would be life and flourishing. Now, I know that was a quick answer, and there's probably more to talk about. Um, was it not that quick? Uh, it was super quick. It was, for everything it was, that was a totally, lot, right? Totally, that was a totally, lot. totally, totally, totally. <laughs> If you have more questions, let's sit down and talk. There's, there's lots of evidence. Listen, this is not a, like Tyler Johnson spoke about last week, this is not a faith issue where it's blind. There's a faith issue where there's an overwhelming amount of evidence pointing to this reality 
And so that was, uh, I think that one required such time because most of our answers today are going to be because the Bible says this. And if you don't believe the scriptures or the word of God to man, then the whole thing falls through. Okay, so again, if that is an issue for you, I will take you to coffee. I'll take you to lunch. We'll do that. Let's sit down and we'll talk through more of that reality. Yeah, I actually want to add to that. Um, but uh, even though I laughed at you. Uh, but I, I, a lot of times we hear this in the classroom. We hear this on a lot. I think YouTube does a lot of videos like, how could, it's just a big game of telephone. And when you just study the actual historical manuscripts, uh, it's not that, you know. And I, I was rec- I'm recently reading a, a church history book, and they actually have um, copies uh, of what each region um, brought to the Council of Nicaea to, to make the canon of the Bible. And the copies are very similar. And then the books that are taken out, they're not these crazy books that we've seen in the last few decades or so, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. Like, no one was thinking those books uh, were part of it. And actually, those books, um, most scholars say, were written like a thousand years later. And so, um, so a, a lot of this kind of stuff, if you just take some time to really study what historians are saying, um, it, will, it really will build your faith in, in the accuracy of the Bible. Yeah, and I, now, to, now you say that, just the last thing that the bibliographical test, because I moved so quick I forgot, is the gap between the original writing and the earliest copy we have. Again, for the Iliad, it's 400 years. For the uh, earliest New Testament scripture is 50 years, or maybe even less as they find more and more. And you will read these books where they'll say, oh, like, so for the Gospel of Mark, for a long time they said, well, Gospel of Mark, the earliest manuscript we have is until like 170. So clearly that wasn't even written by Mark. And so we cannot attest any reality to it, their own testimony failed was this written by an apostle. And so they say all these things, and then just recently we found a new manuscript written on papyrus of the Gospel of Mark dated to 90 AD, okay, which is potentially somewhere within 30 to 40 years within the, the writing of the Gospel of Mark. And so they're verifying and doing all that kind of stuff. But a lot of the evidence, again, is overwhelmingly pointing to, yeah, this is about as good as it gets and should be the new, like, heralded test for, of which uh, we, we put all other books of antiquity against, but it's not. Anyway, question five. All right. Question number five. What happens to all the people who died before Jesus came? Did any of them go to heaven? If so, how? All right. So make sure that's what's up there. All right. So, uh, um, so in the Old Testament, kind of they, they did believe in the afterlife. and they did, the, the Old Testament does teach of an afterlife. And often the afterlife is this word in there that you might have seen before called Sheol, right? It, and what's interesting about this word Sheol is it will say, like, righteous people will go to Sheol, like David talks about going there, and unrighteous people going to Sheol. And so you hear that and go, wait, what? That's a little bit different um, than what I was taught. And I think part of that was because uh, God hadn't clarified it yet. And so, I, I, and maybe he did in some ways and we just weren't seeing it. But, and so then we get to Jesus and in Luke 16, Jesus tells this story about um, the, this man named Lazarus and a rich man and that they both die. And one, uh, and, and they use the term Hades, which was, which was basically Sheol updated uh, for their language. And so we see that this place Hades is divided into two places, one of them um, being by Abraham's side, which a lot of times is, or called Abraham's bosom or um, paradise, and, and one of them was, it looks like a picture of hell, and there and there's torture there and those things, and so, um, so that all that to say, <laughs> um, 
with the Old Testament believers, uh, I think you had to believe in Yahweh. I think you had to believe. And so that was when you see L-O-R-D in capital letters in your Bible, that's Yahweh. I think you had to believe in that God. I don't, I don't think you had to be an Israelite. I think if you were of a different uh, race or region and believed in Yahweh, you would uh, end up on the good side of Sheol, with it, uh, on Abraham's side, as Luke 16 says. Um, and then those that, that didn't, I think, uh, were on the, on, on the hell side. Uh, of Sheol. And so it, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's kind of the, the gist of it. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I think we need to, like, you need to think through the reality of, okay, so we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and you have Abraham in this relationship with God. God says, hey, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And he says, so that you will be a blessing, right, so that you will go out and you will take what I am teaching you. You will proclaim my glory, my majesty, to the nations, to the world. The world will be blessed in and through you in the establishment of this covenant, right? And so God, I don't think in this moment, is not going to Abraham and saying, hey man, like, I want you to make the life of everyone while they're still alive for the 30 to 40 years that they have here to be really good, right? I don't think he's saying, hey, go and bless the nations so that the nations will be able to have a really high quality of life while they're here. I think he's trying to make himself known to the world. He's trying to say, go and bless them with the story, with the covenant, with the reality that I am the God of the universe and have created all things and desire to see all things redeemed and restored fully, right? And so I think he does, does that. We see constantly throughout the Old Testament uh, interactions and how God is calling the people even during the Babylonian captivity, right? He says, no, 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 don't leave Babylon. Rather, go to Babylon, engage in Babylon, get into Babylon, work, live, marry, have sons, have daughters, be invested in the city because in your flourishing and your prosperity, they will see their own prosperity. Again, I think God is trying to communicate his relationship, his love, certainly not just with the one people, but they were to be the people to bring the message to the world as is the church today, right? So we are now a sent people. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? It's not just that we would have this great life. It's that we would go and tell the world that they would be reconciled and redeemed to God. And so certainly I don't know what this looks like. We're reminded in Revelation 7 that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. This is a truth that I celebrate because I don't know how God saves everyone. I don't know what it looks like. And I don't know all the specific answers to how God is going to do it or how we did it in the Old Testament. I know there needs to be faith in him. We know that Abraham, it was righteousness was counted him because of faith and nothing else. It wasn't because he was a good person. It wasn't because he was circumcised. It was because he had faith in the one true God. So the truth, I think, that exists today existed in the Old Testament. And so certainly, I think people went to heaven. And, and, and again, the temporal realities of all that are somewhat confusing. But uh, a lot of that, hopefully, we'll know when we get there. I think we'll probably be somewhat helpful. Yep. Um, the next part, this is almost like part B to this question. And it's, uh, and this is a question, what does the Bible say about hell? And there's a couple sub questions to it. It's like, what happens to an unbeliever after death? Uh, and, and this uh, question specifically, where do babies go uh, when they die? Which is, which is an extremely tough question and, and very personal to me as well. Um, I'll say first about hell. There was a book that came out in the last uh, three years that uh, from a very popular and famous uh, author, pastor, 
who uh, pretty much said that hell is kind of not real, right? That it's, uh, hell is almost today. Like, if you're experiencing pain and brokenness today, you're already kind of experiencing the hell that this world has to offer. And then potentially even after, there might be this kind of darkness for a bit, but God will redeem you out of that as well. And so I just cannot uh, say enough that that's just not what the Bible teaches whatsoever, right? It's just, it's just not there. And I think if we uh, try and adopt this reality, if, if God just brings everyone, it contradicts not just real, heavy, complete doctrine about God. It contradicts the entire counsel of Scripture from start to finish. A God who is coming to redeem all things and yet is both loving and just at the same time. So hell is a real place. There is a reality in the Bible that hell is given different names in different places. I believe it's four different words is used for the, uh, we have four different words in the Bible for the word hell, and you try and figure out, well, what does that mean, right? There's, um, uh, what's the one, the one outside the city? I'm forgetting. Gehenna. Yeah, Gehenna, you got the thing, Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place. Like, you, you can talk historically about Gehenna, the place outside the city where there was trash, there was all that stuff. People would be sent there, criminals, all that kind of thing. And so you begin to really wonder, what is God trying to overly communicate about hell? And I would say this, there is a place that exists after you die that is completely separate from God, which is the greatest punishment, to never have him at all. The reality of the world that we exist in today is whether or not you believe in him, whether or not you are a Christian, God is here and ruling the world. His common grace cares for you, gives you life, gives you breath, gives you knowledge, gives you insight, gives you love, gives you et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You remove him, you remove grace. You remove grace, it is not good for you. And so listen, I don't know. There's talks, right? You can read the Bible. There's imagery in there of fire, sure, There's imagery of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sure, I have not been there. I cannot describe it to you specifically in the same way. We cannot give you the exact details of what heaven will be like either. But we know there is no God. And we know that it is where you go if you do not know Jesus. If he is not the Lord and Savior of your life. That's what we know. That's what the Bible says. And so it does exist. And then the last part to that of where do babies go when they die? I think they go to heaven. I think the Bible says that they go to heaven. When you talk to different theologians, you'll find a, you'll find a, um, a spectrum of answers on this. Some will say no because of imputed sin, because of Adam. There is sin in them, and that has not been cleansed because they have not given their life over. They have not confessed However, I think Romans 1 speaks to this reality of us needing to have the faculty to be able to respond to him. Now, this does not divorce the reality that there exists people in our world that have not heard the gospel per se in the way that we often present it that I do believe are still going to hell. I think what Romans 1 speaks of and what many theologians would advocate when they say babies go to heaven is the reality that they do not have the faculty to even respond if a message was ever presented. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, that it is speaking to the world. Romans 1 tells us that God's word goes forth, right, and that we receive and that we have rejected. This doesn't exist for an infant who cannot make literally a single decision for themselves. And so I think that because of this, they are not due the responsibility nor the weight of sin and that God in his grace will save them. 
and will deliver them from this present darkness and bring them into his light. So, do you have anything to add? Yeah, you know, that one, that, like Vince said, there's a spectrum on it. You know, you have to be, you have to be careful. Like, there isn't a Bible verse that says, all babies go to heaven. You know, like, that, that, that Bible verse doesn't exist. Um, and some, some helpful things is David, he, um, one of his uh, babies died, and he spoke of it in the Psalms as going to paradise and going to heaven, and that he would be with the baby one day. And so that's kind of some biblical evidence we have for it. But other than that, um, we, we just we can't be totally sure. So, yeah. yeah. And I would, I would add this, and, and this, is, this is something I've been trying to do actually quite a bit of study on. I, I would extend that reality um, to those who are uh, with mental disability that will not allow for them to understand nor comprehend the reality of God, nor Christ, nor the gospel. Um, and so and that, that one's even more debated, right? And so, uh, but that's something I'm, I'm researching quite a bit. And so like someone with Down syndrome, right, who again is, is just, it's not the same. There isn't the faculty to decide. Um, yeah, I think there's probably and hopefully in prayer room for the God to save in the midst of that. But we do know uh, that all are accountable to what God has communicated to his people, right? That his word has gone forth and it has reached the hearts of men. And so we must respond to it. And I think the only thing that would kind of delineate in that is the ability to be able to even respond. So, yeah. All right. Question seven. Um, why isn't God as active in society as he was? For example, the book of Judges. Yeah, um, he is, you know, uh, he just is. Uh, and I think we just, uh, we just have a different outlook on it. I think we do this a lot when we read the Bible, when we read the Old Testament specifically. Or if we even read, you know, the book of Acts, we're like, man, God was just really doing his thing, man. He was super involved and there was miracles, there was all this kind of stuff. And I would say, no, all that stuff, that's happening today. God is just as involved, okay? A couple of scriptures for us. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance, this is Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? So, so Jesus reigning as king, listen, he's holding this whole thing together. So if you think he's not involved, we're just missing the whole point, right? We do not exist. We don't breathe. You don't sit here. We don't worship. We don't do anything if Jesus is not keeping and sustaining all things. Colossians 1, 17, 18 says this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Again, he is holding everything together. His grace has gone forth. That you and I can exist, okay? That the world does not just decompose, does not, I don't know what would happen if Jesus took his guiding hand and the word of his power off of this world. I just wouldn't, it just would be gone, right? And so he is as active, if not more active. Here's what we know, okay? Jesus came into the world, and so certainly he was very active during his time, right? So we would say Jesus was just as active as during Judges, because in Judges, they're communicating with the people, but he's still somewhat, somewhat far off. Jesus becomes flesh, comes into this world. Certainly we would say that is active. Then he goes away, and we're left with what we have today, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself says that it is better that he goes away, because when he goes away, we get the counselor. We get the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit exists in you, Jesus is saying, it's better that I live in you than next to you. 
And so God is incredibly active today. It's in and through his people by the presence of the Holy Spirit whom has, whom has been given to us. Okay? The Holy Spirit illuminates scripture. Right? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. When you read the Bible, you are able to read it. It is illuminated to you by the Holy Spirit. You're not just smart. Okay? The Holy Spirit does that for you and for me. The Holy Spirit is who goes out and saves. The Holy Spirit is the one who counsels. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes in and says, that is a terrible decision, don't do that. And then when you say, forget it, I'm doing it anyway, he's the one who tells you, knock it off, this will destroy you. He is the one that guides you back to repentance. He is the one that does miracle after miracle after miracle. And yes, they do happen here. We just need to open our eyes a little bit more and maybe even stop saying that the only miracle is if someone gets healed when the sheer miracle is the fact that anyone's life who has changed is indeed a miracle. That everyone in here has a testimony. Well, not, maybe not everyone. Most of you probably have a testimony of how God has redeemed and changed your life. That is miraculous because you did not deserve it and it was not of you. God came in, transformed your heart, renewed your mind and made you like himself, okay? These are the activities of God in the world today. Just like judges, does he discipline? Certainly. Does he call his people back to himself? Absolutely. Is he constantly saying, stop it, knock it off, repent, come back to me? Yes, 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 yes. If it's anything, I feel like we've just plugged our ears and we've closed our eyes and we no longer see the way he moves. And that is on us, not on the activity of God. Yeah, I would just say, I mean, if you're kind of wondering, well, then why doesn't he speak out loud to me? Like, why don't I hear an audible voice? Um, I would say that maybe it is, it, God is trying to illustrate to us that the, the reality of the Holy Spirit living in us now um, uh, rather than being beside. And so um, uh, that's what I would say to that. Yeah, and the Bible, guys, the Bible is the word of God that goes forth and pierces to the deepest parts of us, Right. The Bible is God's word going forth. So does he speak to us? Yes. You just don't know it because you don't read your Bible. And, and I'm the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like. He's getting preachy today. <laughs> These questions you, you getting know, at him. <laughs> you know. Um, open up. It is the word of God. That's what we call it that. Because it's the word of God. Who has communicated to his people. How we are not to not just to live, but what the story of the world is. That as we get deeper and understand our role in it, we become responders to the gospel that go and seek the change of the world. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, question eight. This was how it was written. <laughs> Disproving evolution? <laughs> I think, I imagine that was their voice. Uh, so uh, this is su- not controversial at all, so I'll just get after it. Uh, so I think this person wants me to disprove evolution, and so uh, I'll say this. <laughs> I don't believe in evolution as it's, you know, as it's popularized, especially in evangelicalism. Um, but to really disprove evolution, I think you have to understand many facets of science, and you have to understand many facets of the theory of evolution, and there are, in my opinion, and many Christians' opinion, aspects of, of evolution that are true. And so evolution's kind of broken down into two big buckets. There's microevolution and then there's macroevolution, okay? Microevolution are like these little adaptations in species over time. Like you might see um, a bunch of bugs sprayed with poison 
and some of them live, the rest die, and then those ones breed, they will pass on the genetics to be more resistant to that poison, okay? That's why cockroaches live through everything. Um, and, and that's proven. We can see that. We can test that. We can even um, do it again in a laboratory, so to speak. Now, there's macroevolution, and this is the idea that one species completely changed into another species, right? Like, like a fish one day turns into a dog, right? And, uh, and uh, forgive me uh, if there are any evolutionists in here that say you're not uh, painting an accurate picture, but I, I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, I grew up in the church. Please forgive me. Uh, and, uh, and so that part of evolution... I would say I don't believe, one, because I'm a Christian and I think God, the story of Genesis is somewhat literal and true, if, if not completely literal. Um, and then two is I don't think there's enough scientific evidence for macroevolution. And so one of the biggest things you need to prove macroevolution, that's one species to the next, is something called a transitional species. And if this is his, what's been happening on Earth for millions of years, as many evolutionists claim, then there would be a, ton, a huge fossil record of transitional species, right? So the transitional species, if you, don't, you know that picture where there's like a monkey and it turns into like a, a little bit bigger monkey that's kind of walking and then it turns into a, a man, right? And then sometimes I've seen guys that look like the fourth one, though. Um, <laughs> So that, those are transitional species uh, as, as put out by the theory of evolution. And so Darwin, when he came up with his theory of evolution, he himself even said, hey, we don't have great fossil records now, but if in 100 years, I think we should have enough fossil records. And he said, and if we don't have uh, many verifiable transitional species, I would say don't believe in evolution. Um, and that's, that's a real quote. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but you can look that up. Darwin did say that, and I could point you to that. Um, so uh, that to say there are some, uh, like Lucy over at ASU, um, there are some things scientists believe are transitional species. Um, there's probably about a dozen all over the world of, like, fo of like skeletal remains. I just am not very convinced by them. And, and a lot of the science community at large are not convinced by them either. So I'm going to take a breath. Hopefully no one uh, crucifies me after this. Sorry. Um, so uh, I will say this. I think it is somewhat of an open-handed issue in that I know Christians that have a vibrant relationship with God, and I see the fruit of the Spirit in their life, and they believe in macroevolution. And I, I go, hey, like, you're, you're totally a sinner. But, uh, but uh, they have reasons. Like, one of my best friends, his dad is a, uh, is a scientist. He's a doctor, essentially, and he just studies viruses. And he's over in Africa, and he studies these major viruses and how to, to, to deal with them. And my friend's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure my dad believes in macroevolution. And so, um, and I know that guy's a believer. Like, he's the sweetest guy that loves Jesus a ton. And so I don't know what to do with that personally. Maybe he's off kilter there a bit. But uh, um, so I would say look into it. And uh, I would say, though, you should probably believe in a literal Adam and Eve, like that they were literally created by God. And I think if you don't, there are some troubling things uh, biblically uh, that you have to account for. So nice. I don't know. That's good. 
Uh, we're going to do a couple more that we got in, and then, uh, and you guys, actually, we've had a ton of people text in, um, and so uh, we're going to do our best not to run, not to run real long, so let me answer these really quick here. Uh, the two other questions that we received, can I live in sin, uh, in parentheses, was have sex in my relationship and still be saved and go to heaven, um, and uh, yeah, here's the thing with that, man, it is always a question of repentance, all day, every day, and so, uh, yeah, can I live in sin? Man, I, I don't know. It, when, if you mean by definition live in sin, I don't care that it's wrong. I'm going to do my own thing, and Jesus, you can shove it. Then I don't think so, because that's not what the Bible preaches. The Bible preaches repentance. The Bible says, listen, this is sin. You need to repent of that sin. If you don't, I don't know if that's evidence of your love for Jesus. The Bible says, he who has my commands and does them is the one who loves me. Right? So there is a reality of, yes, the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ covers over a multitude of sins. You are cleansed by his blood, and there is not a sin that you can do that is going to, to push you too far away from God. But it is always a question of repentance. Jesus is always coming forward with repentance. Are you understanding you need to turn to him? And if you're not, if you're saying, listen, no, to heck with you, I don't believe you, I'm out of here, man, I don't know. Is the Lord's arm longer than mine and can reach and drag you back and do his own thing? Does salvation belong to our God? Yes, right? So I don't know your specific situation. I just know the Bible preaches you need to repent of your sin and live in the light of the gospel. Now, does this mean, right, that if you're in a relationship right now and just last night outside of marriage you had sex with your partner, right? Am I going to hell? I don't know, right? I don't know your relationship with Jesus. If you love Jesus, if you experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you were trying to repent for that sin, yeah, I think you're a Christian going to heaven. If you do the same thing next week, and yet you're still repentant, like truly repentant in your heart. You were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Absolutely. The question is, do you know Jesus? Because there were a lot of people, Jesus says to himself at the end of time, who will come to him and say, Jesus, Jesus. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So the question is, do you know Christ? And to know Christ, we repent of our sin and we pursue him. So I would love, if that's your question, let's sit down and talk through that, and we will, uh, yeah, we can just kind of get into where you're at, what's going on with your heart, uh, and the whole deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the last one, can we listen to music that isn't Christian? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can. Um, question 11. Um, no. Um, yeah, you can, because, you know, and, and, but let me, let me be very clear. Here's a caveat to that. Listen, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's convicting you of, and I don't know your story. So maybe, yeah, listening to some form of music leads you and taps you into sin and leads you down a path of unrighteousness. And the Holy Spirit's like, listen, no, don't listen to that. Like, this, this is not okay for you. It's the same, like, if, you, if you're an AA, don't have a beer, right? Stay away. Can you have alcohol? Yes, but don't drink the beer if you're an alcoholic that can be led back into that lifestyle. So I don't know what the Holy Spirit's telling you. If he's saying, listen, don't listen to music, then yeah, it's sin for you to listen to that music. You need to obey God. But is there freedom in Christ to listen to secular music? Absolutely. And I would even make the final charge that all music is in some sense sacred and God-filled, right? That, that if you're listening to, like when I'm listening to like the national, like 
man, I'm like, man, this is some brilliant stuff. And I'm reminded that it is the God of the universe who gave this man and his band the ability to craft this type of music in order that my ears would say, God, you are amazing that you created these sounds and you created these minds that could compose them. Like it is all, everything is meant to point you back to a God who created and continues to create, right? And so in that, I think there is sacredness even to that music. But if it is a conviction for you from the Holy Spirit, you must obey him, okay? Yeah, and I, I would say there's, may, there, to speak to the other side of it, and my dad would be mad if I didn't, um, I think uh, I just saw some one of person's text. It's making me laugh. Sorry. Uh, they asked who we were voting for. Randy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Come but anyways, on, man. Uh, we will not tell you. Uh, anyways, to speak to it, I think there are certainly instances where music itself is sinful, probably, and we probably shouldn't partake in that as Christians. And so I think you have to uh, to be the judge of that. And I think there it's it's a debatable matter, but. Um, so I don't think it's just like you could just listen to everything and it would not ever affect you or not ever lead you down a bad path or something. So, yeah. yeah. This one's important. Is Actually, there evidence? there's one more up here. Is there? Yeah, I think I put one in that you didn't see. Oh, that's awkward. Actually, there's two more. Um, so how is it, I'll answer this quickly. How is the fact that there are so many denominations affecting God's will? Okay, I, that's how they wrote it too. And so um, I'm not sure what you're saying, but if you're saying like, hey, this denomination over here is praying for this, and this denomination over here is praying for that, which one is God going to answer? I think, first of all, God's will is God's will. Like he's going to get after it, right? He's going to do what he's going to do, right? Now, I think we do interact in a, in a way with God where it seems sometimes um, he, he, like he's acting on our behalf or whatever. Um, and I don't think there's going to be a situation where there's Christians contradicting each other. And I, I, I would love to, whoever wrote that question, sit down and talk to you about that more. But if anything, I think, you know, the gospel should unite all denominations. And so, yeah, there's some practice that we, we differ on. Um, uh, and uh, I think that's okay. You know, sometimes denominations were born out of a movement of God. Right, and so they made it a denomination. Sometimes they were born out of sin, like because uh, they disagreed about something that you know. If they just talked for ten more minutes and actually were loving towards one another, they wouldn't have had to create that denomination. Um, so that's kind of my. So I don't think necessarily each like God's like, hey, you know, this denomination's the best. Uh, I think God just wants us to believe in His Son and uh, and find unity. Uh, amongst us. And that's part of the reason why we pray for other churches and other denominations too every Sunday. Nice. You said there was a Yeah, I think there's one more. This one's easy. Uh, Is communion cannibalism? (laughs) We really got this. Um, No, it's not. (laughs) Um, That's a, I mean, if uh, Catholicism believes something different, but they don't believe in cannibalism, okay? So, uh, Protestants, come on, start studying your your Catholic brothers and sisters, because um, they don't believe in cannibalism either, okay? So um, they, bre- they believe in something called transubstantiation. Um, and to blow your minds, Martin Luther did too, who's like the, you know, the, the father of the Protestant faith, so to speak. Um, so I would just encourage you to look into what that really means. Or even if you have a very close Catholic friend, sit down with them and ask them what it means. So. Okay. Me, can I just ask this? We, there's, about, there's a handful more questions here. We can wrap up right now. And... I'm just going to go majority. Should we, should we just move to music and, and, and do that now, or do you guys want to do a few more? Music. Amanda, you ranch kids, you know DMI. 
All right. Um, yeah, we're in a mix. Let's do. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna do two more, and then we're out, and we'll get the band up, and, and we'll do our we'll do our thing. So uh, I want I want to cover this one because it's a question about a question we already said. Uh, so my question about question seven. Uh, last week we talked about the Bible not being a baseball manual. Uh, does that mean that the Word of God is only applicable to my spiritual life? What if I want earthly? Help, And I would just say this, no, it's rather uh, that your spiritual life encapsulates everything, right? And so um, your spiritual life, everything you do is sacred. This is the, why we say all of life is all for Jesus, is that everything you do, God cares about, right? Your physical well-being, your emotional well-being, what we know is your spiritual well-being, God cares about all of it. And so the Bible speaks to all of it. And so certainly if you want, quote unquote, like you said, earthly help, yeah, the Bible is going to handle that all day long, but it's always going to be underneath the banner and the umbrella of the story of God. The number one thing that will help and serve you in this life and the next is knowing Jesus and knowing his story. There's nothing more. So when we understand the gospel, we understand who's gone before us, we understand the traditions, the history, and what the church is today, that then informs both your, uh, I mean, your physical, your emotional, your spiritual, your mental, every aspect of it. And so certainly the Bible speaks to those things. Um, and that's that. Okay. What? Uh, no, nothing. I'm okay, just... cool. Uh, there's a question about speaking in tongues. I'd love to talk to you more about that later. Uh, this one, especially how can our church do a better job of reaching out to the poor and oppressed in Flagstaff and the native American reservations? Um, man, I just whoever you are, I love you. Let's sit down and let's talk about that. I would love to to dream with you what that what that yeah. means. Um, we would say like we don't know, but we want to know. Like we want to figure that out. And I think too often, uh, myself and as white people, we want to come into every uh, culture that's different than ours and tell them how to live. And I, I want to be, I, or we want to be the saviors of every culture a lot of times. And I think we need to be learners and we need to make Jesus the savior of every culture. And so, yeah, thank you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. But no, I, I think that's real. And so as a church, though, that's a value of us that we want to be learners in this situation. And um, I, I don't think we even have the beginning of the answers of what that would look like, except to, to listen, learn, and, and love the best that we can. Yeah. The last thing we'll say, there's a couple of political questions. No, vote for whoever you want to, okay, kind of, sort of, talk to me more about it. Uh, but no, you're, you're not going to hell. I'll say that for the one who asks, am I going to hell if I vote for this certain person, okay? Uh, if I, it's Satan, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I mean, <laughs> just given kidding. a couple options, I'm thinking right in Jesus is probably the way to go here. Yeah. Uh, that being said, is there, last question we're going to ask, is there evidence that Jesus uh, was born and lived, archaeological evidence or the disciples um, as well as the miracles that they did and yes, overwhelmingly, there is, uh, if you are a scholar, be it Christian, atheist, agnostic, something I don't know about, if you're any of those things, you are in a severe minority if you do not believe in the reality that a man named Jesus Christ existed and did the things he did. Now, the divinity piece, people question that, the miracle, sure, but the reality of the existence of a man named Christ who revolutionized the entire modern world, who came into Rome and changed the entire landscape, author after author after author, outside of Scripture, in Scripture, they all attest to this guy being real. The miracles, you see those attested to in a ton of extra-biblical uh, authorities as well through the early church fathers. In fact, there is... If you were to take all of the early church fathers that just quoted the Bible and repeated miracles that happened during the life of Jesus, we would have the entire compilation of Scripture, the entire Bible, outside of 11 verses, okay? 
if you just looked at what people wrote about Jesus on the outside looking in. And so, yeah, the evidence is, is overwhelming. He was a real guy, and this is, uh, and, and even these are some of the basic things that he, he did and claimed, okay? So, do you want to, last thing or no? Yeah, last thing. I'll preach 30 minutes next week, so it's a little shorter for us. Sorry, guys. Sorry, yeah. about, sorry we went long here. Um, um, let me pray for us. Okay, yeah. And, uh, oh, were you going to, were you going to keep going? No, no, I, I was just like, yeah, it's your fault. It was my fault. I'm sorry. Uh, if, if, again, there wasn't a question, if you text one in, listen, I'm seeing them all. Come and talk to us. Like, we'd love to continue these conversations. At the end of this, listen, worship Jesus. And so that's what we're going to come and do. And Asher and the band's going to come back up and continue to lead us. We're going to take communion. We're going to do all that. And so uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll, we'll sing, we'll celebrate, and we'll go. God, we thank you that, um, God, there is not a question in this world that you cannot answer. There is plenty that we cannot answer, but you are the author, the perfecter, the sovereign Lord and King over all things. And because of that, God, there's no question that I'm ever afraid to, to speak about or to have dialogue about. Because, God, you're just, you're just good and you're real. And you can answer all things. And, God, you've come to deliver us and to save us and to reconcile us back to yourself. And so, Lord, I do, excuse me, I do pray, God, that you would bless us now as we respond in worship. And that, God, you would... Um, you just be glorified in everything, and that your people would respond to you in everything we do. God, be praised today. In your name we pray. Amen.